0: This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. Is belief in God rational? And as a subtitle, Aquinas, on living with the limits of reason. Is it rational to believe in God? There is a conventional modern Thomistic answer that would address this in terms of faith and reason showing how some truths about God's existence and nature can be known using philosophical argument, and then explaining how the distinctive mysteries of Christian faith, which are beyond rational demonstration, doctrines such as the Trinity, the Incarnation, the Atonement, and Resurrection, can still be rationally defended against any and all philosophical objection. While this approach is legitimately Thomistic, Such a conventional presentation of faith and reason leaves out some important dimensions of the rationality of belief in God, according to Aquinas. It leaves the impression that for Aquinas, the rationality of theistic belief in general is something dependent on philosophical proof. It also suggests that specifically Christian faith is reasonable only insofar as it can be philosophically defended from criticism, as if the mysteries of faith are only rational insofar as they are compatible with what is philosophically demonstrable. What I want to emphasize in this talk, however, is how Aquinas' conception of rational theological belief includes both much less than and much more than strictly demonstrative proofs or philosophical argumentation. There are ways in which, without depending on philosophical argument at all, belief in God is rational. There are ways that philosophical arguments have important religious value beyond their capacity to prove truths or refute falsehoods. And there are ways in which supernatural faith is rational, not only as logically compatible with rational argument, but as addressing our rational nature in a way that rational argument alone never could. My plan, then, is to depart from a conventional presentation of Aquinas on faith and reason, I will begin by pointing out that in general, St. Thomas is keenly aware of the challenges to and limits of knowledge. Though he is sometimes presented as a confident realist, Aquinas deserves to be better known as a, for his profound epistemic humility, even for skepticism. For Aquinas, it is rational to recognize that there is much that we do not and cannot know. Second on the rationality of belief in God, instead of emphasizing philosophical proof, I will talk about something more basic, what Aquinas thinks are more common, pre-philosophical, but still naturally reasonable paths to knowing God. While Aquinas does think truths about God's existence and nature can be proven, philosophical argument is not the only way in which he believes people normally by their own lights and mundane powers and without the assistance of supernatural grace form rational beliefs about God. Finally, I will show how for Aquinas, even where there is room for theological proof, these have an important function beyond their power to demonstrate their conclusions. Demonstrative philosophical arguments about the existence and nature of God might, in limited circumstances, have persuasive or apologetic power over atheists and agnostics, but they also have an effect on the theistic believer, who formulates and reflects on those arguments and contemplates their conclusions. Philosophical demonstrations about the existence and nature of God help us to acquire and purify our concepts of God. More than offering a path from ignorance to certainty, in a Socratic way, they make us more aware of our ignorance, and they help to deepen wisdom and cultivate wonder, disposing us better to appreciate truths of Christian faith as at once rational and beyond reason. So part one, Aquinas on the limits of knowledge. It is common to sketch the history of modern philosophy as progressing through a series of attempts to overcome or make peace with Descartes' skepticism. Descartes called into question the ability of our mind to grasp any reality outside of itself. His own rationalism seemed an unsatisfactory solution and subsequent ventures in empiricism, transcendental idealism, romanticism, and phenomenology all can make sense as alternative strategies for defending knowledge in the wake of Cartesian doubt. In this context, some modern Thomists have presented Aquinas as providing his own response to the skeptical challenge. His solution to the problem of knowledge, sometimes called realism, holds that the world is constituted and organized by intelligible actualizing principles, forms, and that the human soul is especially fit to grasp these forms. The word form in this context is trying to capture an active mode of being or cause, something, making something to be characterized or determined in some way. If things in the world have causes, making them to be what they are, We can know about those things to the extent that those causes or forms are somehow impressed on or received into our cognition. Aquinas' realism holds that the mind is by its nature, and of course, contingent on the right conditions, suited to receive the forms of things so that cognition involves the knower and the known unified. However, part of Aquinas' conception of cognition in terms of the reception of forms is that there are different modes of form and that forms are received according to the mode of being of the receiver. So while it is appropriate to describe Aquinas as a defender of the possibility of knowledge, we must also remember that the mode of the human mind receiving the various modes of actualizing powers in the world faces a number of intrinsic obstacles and limits, a consequence of which is the prevalence of human ignorance. There are different kinds of objects that we might want to know about sensible objects, social facts, political probabilities, historical events, psychological states, technical skills, just to name a few. The constitution of the human mind is such that it is not always possible or easy to access or receive the actualizing powers of such disparate objects. And even when it is possible, knowledge of some things might be attained only in a limited way and only with a great deal of help. Knowing geometry is different from knowing veterinary science, moral knowledge differs from culinary knowledge, and so on. Knowledge is a common term then for something that is realized in different ways. It is domain specific. Yves Simone appropriately called St. Thomas's position epistemological pluralism. In the broadest sense, we can even count sensation as a mode of knowing or cognizing for particular physical things. With my eyes, I see my cat Sophie on the windowsill. By contrast, I intellectually grasp abstracted generalizations about that sensible thing. For instance, that Sophie is a cat, or that cats are mammals. It is only about intelligible objects, not sensible objects, that we can have properly scientific knowledge with certainty and demonstrability. Even so, limiting ourselves to properly demonstrative knowledge, we accept that there are levels of certitude in the sciences because there are different kinds of things, different kinds of causes in the things we want to know. And these can be more or less dependent on other causes and more or less abstractable from the things that they inform. So within the sciences, there are levels of certainty and there can be no properly scientific knowledge at all for whole realms of reality that we care about. For instance, wherever there is no essential or necessary cause to be known. Wherever there is randomness, or chance, which Aquinas describes as involving fortune, there cannot be scientific knowledge in the strictest sense. An obvious realm of contingency is all of human affairs. Human action is never entirely predictable, even to the agent before choosing the action. And Aquinas, again following Aristotle, warns against seeking certainty in a science of human activity. Part of being rational then is accepting ignorance and degrees of uncertainty. Aquinas following Aristotle counsels against expecting more certainty than is appropriate in any given domain. Here I'm gonna quote a passage from the beginning of his commentary on Aristotle's Nicomachean Ethics. The method of manifesting truth in any science ought to be suitable to the subject matter of that science. Certitude cannot be found nor should it be sought in the same degree in all discussions where we reason about anything. The educated man ought not look for greater, nor be satisfied with less, certitude, than is appropriate to the subject under discussion. It seems an equal fault, he continues, to allow a mathematician to use rhetorical arguments and to demand from a rhetorician conclusive demonstrations such as a mathematician would give. Mistakes happen because the method appropriate to the matter is not considered. Mathematics is concerned with matter in which perfect certitude is found. Rhetoric, however, deals with political matter where there is a multiplicity of variation. Human reasoning is in fact adapted to these different modes, many more common than formal logical argument. The passage just quoted treats rhetoric as an appropriate mode of inquiry a path to awareness of truth in practical matters, political or moral. Along with rhetoric, Aquinas also treats dialectical reasoning, indirect, probable, investigative, as opposed to systematic, demonstrative, and certain, and even treats poetry as an appropriate mode of reasoning, inquiry, or persuasion for some domains. These non-scientific modes of reasoning do not establish strict knowledge, they don't demonstrate certainties, but by appealing to imagination and appetite, they form beliefs and opinions and even attractions and prejudices that are rightly oriented and true. For the poet's task, says Aquinas, is to lead us to something virtuous by some excellent description. This is the task of any leader, not only to discern the best course of action, but persuade others to follow it. Leadership requires judging and helping others to judge Causes, in a variety of practical matters, difficult to discern and not absolutely certain, even in the best cases. In theoretical matters, the highest or first principles are at once most certain when grasped, but also the most difficult to reach. These first causes, sought in metaphysics or natural theology, are most necessary and most few, but they are also the most separated from what is familiar to us most removed from our embodied experience. Even a purely spiritual creature, unencumbered by any body, that is an angel, must face limits to its knowledge. But human beings as embodied and social beings are even farther removed from the first principles of reality. In a political work on kingship, Aquinas describes the appropriateness of human knowledge being dependent on our condition as physical and social beings. All other animals, he says, are able to discern by inborn skill what is useful and what is injurious, even as the sheep naturally regards the wolf as his enemy. Some animals also recognize by natural skill certain medicinal herbs and other things necessary for their life. Man, on the contrary, has a natural knowledge of the things which are essential for his life only in a general fashion. Inasmuch as he is able to attain knowledge of the particular things necessary for human life by reasoning from natural principles. But it is not possible, he continues, for one man to arrive at a knowledge of all these things by his own individual reason. It is therefore necessary for man to live in a multitude so that each one may assist his fellows and different men may be occupied in seeking by their reason to make different discoveries. One, for example, in medicine, one in this, and another in that. So to summarize, Aquinas' understanding of human knowledge in general does not affirm that knowledge, in general does affirm that knowledge is possible, but it also provides principled reasons, an account of the causes why knowledge is limited, and accepting ignorance is part of rational judgment. Specifically, some domains, by their nature, do not admit of any knowledge at all, Some domains, by their nature, only admit of knowledge in a very limited and attenuated way. Even in those domains where knowledge is possible, it may be difficult and error-prone. And because of our limited embodied social nature, some truths may reach our intellectual awareness through means other than rational argument, including but not limited to instinct, imagination, and socialization. So part two, normal knowledge of God. Aquinas does think that there is such a thing as theological science, and that truths about God can be known with certainty. And yet, commonly when introducing the science, he warns of its difficulty and makes clear that, strictly speaking, we cannot know God. That is to say, the divine nature is such as not to be something that a human intellect is fit to receive. Here's a passage from the beginning of the Summa Contra Gentiles. That there are certain truths about God that totally surpass man's ability appears with the greatest evidence. It is necessary that the way in which we understand the substance of a thing determines the way in which we know what belongs to it. The human intellect is not able to reach a comprehension of the divine substance through its natural power. Despite this, Aquinas believes that it is possible for human beings to know truths about God through rational inquiry, but here, too, he typically warns about the possibility of error and uncertainty. So again, from the Summa Contra Gentiles, he summarizes some of the sources of error in A Science of God. The investigation of the human reason, for the most part, has falsity present within it, he says, due partly to the weakness of our intellect in judgment, and partly to the admixture of images, sensory impressions. And even with respect to what can be demonstrated, there sometimes is mingled something that is false, which people believe to be demonstrated, but which is rather asserted on the basis of some probable or sophistical, which is to say fallacious, argument. In other words, even those who sincerely are trying to make rational arguments about God are prone to the weakness of the human intellect. They can be misled by imagination, which always accompanies but can cloud or mislead proper thought, and they can conflate proper proofs with fallacious or merely probable reasoning. In context, Aquinas takes this as an argument, not a proof, but a probabilistic argument, evidence of fittingness or appropriateness, for the need for divine revelation. Since we can't achieve knowledge of God on our own, we need God to help us. Aquinas makes a similar argument in the Summa Theologiae, where he lists three ways in which philosophical knowledge of God is inadequate for us on its own and so appropriately supplemented by revealed knowledge. Even as regard those truths about God which human reason could have discovered, he says, it was necessary that man should be taught by a divine revelation— Because the truth about God, such as reason could discover, would only be known by a few, and that after a long time, and with the admixture of many errors. It was therefore necessary that besides philosophical science built up by reason, there should be a sacred science learned through revelation. So these observations defend a place for Christian theology as a revealed science, sacra doctrina a kind of knowledge from God accessible to us by faith. Aquinas' attention to the frailties of reason is an invitation, especially for those most eager to know by argument, to humility, docility, and openness. It is prudent, that is, reasonable or rational, to look for help from the source of truth when we realize the limitations of our own powers to reach it on its own. Commenting on Job's self-mortification, Aquinas describes true humility as manifesting both courage and rationality. The mind stands upright, he says, when it is humbly submitted to God. For each thing exists to a higher and more noble state to the extent it stands firm in what perfects it more. Another passage, defending prophecy, also addresses the reasonableness of receiving God's help In theology. Commenting on the Psalms, Aquinas notes Prophecy is about these things, namely the uncertain and hidden things that are comprehended through your wisdom. In us, something is unknown in a twofold way, which nevertheless is known to God. Something is unknown to us either on account of defect or on account of excess. On account of defect, something is unknown to us that reaches to the future because it does not yet have the truth determined. On account of excess, it is unknown to us, is unknown to us the divine substance and that which exceeds our capacity. Knowing that Aquinas is a Christian theologian, we are not surprised that he would recommend a chastened view of reason, open to the aids of grace. But Aquinas also thinks that apart from faith and apart from speculative proof, it is possible to attain some awareness of and knowledge about God. We can distinguish three ways in which belief in God is rational, for Aquinas. First, there is a sense in which awareness of God's existence comes to us naturally. From from the Summa Theologiae, another passage. To know that God exists in a general and confused way is implanted in us by nature, inasmuch as God is man's beatitude or fulfillment or happiness. For man naturally desires happiness, and what is naturally desired by man must be naturally known to him. This, however, is not to know absolutely that God exists, just as to know that someone is approaching is not the same as to know that it's Peter who is approaching, even though it is Peter. For many there are who imagine that man's perfect good, which is happiness, consists in riches, or others in pleasures, and others in something else. So in this passage, Aquinas is describing a general and confused kind of knowledge of God's existence, implanted in us by nature, by which God is at least vaguely known as our last end, the final, ultimate cause, that for the sake of which we choose all things, happiness. Aquinas sometimes describes this way of knowing God as knowledge that is affective, that is rooted in our inclination or the orientation of the will, as opposed to speculative, which is more properly rooted in the intellect. For instance, in his commentary on the Gospel of John, he explains how John 17.25, the world has not known you, is consistent with Romans 1.19, for what can be known about God is plain to them. He explains the consistency by applying the distinction between speculative and affective knowledge. God is obvious affectively, but speculatively difficult to apprehend. This affective knowing is a form of knowing, but it is not scientific. That is, it doesn't provide conclusive necessary proofs. Given our social nature, it is also appropriate that this natural affective knowledge be influenced not only by our direct experience, but by our relationships with others. So a second non-philosophical mode of coming to know God is through culture. Undoubtedly, society forms us, and we have also seen that Aquinas grasps that our intellectual commitments are subject to forms of persuasion short of demonstrative proof. The disciplines of dialectical inquiry, rhetoric, and poetics are concerned with assent based on inconclusive but nonetheless convincing modes of persuasion, probabilistic argument and persuasion through appeals to character, authority, and imagination. Aquinas understood that most people's beliefs about God are formed in a social environment other than a philosophy class. Many modern thinkers have explicitly developed accounts of the rationality of tradition and the wisdom encoded in culture. John Henry Newman, Hans-Georg Gadamer, and Alistair MacIntyre, to name a few, Aristotle and Plato also showed a deference to local custom and the role of parents and common opinion in shaping belief. While these can be the means of God communicating the gift of faith, on the natural level, they can also be the means by which we as social beings come to know about the existence and nature of God. Nor would Aquinas have any reason to dismiss, in their proper place, arguments that essentially rest on pragmatic considerations of risk management. Either in the existential and spiritual mode of Blaise Pascal, it seems that our immortal happiness is at stake and we have nothing to lose by believing, or in the agnostic utilitarian mode of Nassim Nicholas Taleb, something as durable as religious belief must encode valuable information somehow for social life. Of course, none of these arguments are conclusive and cultural influences on our natural or affective knowledge of God can just as well be harmful as helpful. One particularly dangerous cultural influence, for instance, takes the observation that religious belief can be socially habituated and draws from it an ideological hypothesis, really a myth, that religious belief is a purely human construct. The prevalence of religious belief across cultures and times, rather than counting as evidence that it must contain some truth, thus becomes an excuse to explain it away as artificial meaningless. Another danger is that our vague longing for happiness, which in principle orients us to God, can be clouded by a will misdirected to vicious or sinful objects. Indeed, Aquinas' Aquinas' occasional remarks about affective knowledge of God typically come in discussion of sin and vice. The implication is that a third mode of learning about God is the cultivation of virtue. For instance, Addressing the vice of putting God to the test, effectively denying his goodness, Aquinas clarifies the ways one can seek confirmation of God's goodness. One way is by speculative philosophical argument, but the other is affective or experiential, by which a man experiences in himself the taste of God's sweetness and a taking pleasure in God's will. In defense of experiential knowledge, Aquinas even cites here the Christian Neoplatonist, Pseudo-Dionysius, from the divine names. He learned divine things through experience of them. Still later in the Summa, Aquinas describes how the vice of pride disorients our awareness of reality, while humility gives us a kind of wisdom. Pride indirectly keeps the mind from being open to truth intellectually or speculatively, since it refuses subjection to an ultimate cause. But pride directly impedes our affective knowledge of truth because the proud, he says, through delighting in their own excellence, disdain the excellence of truth. Here, he cites St. Gregory. The proud, although certain hidden truths be conveyed to their understanding, cannot realize their sweetness. And even if they know of them speculatively, They cannot relish them affectively. Aquinas also discusses other vices that corrupt reason, especially lust, which impedes contemplation, crowding out the refined pleasures of the intellect with the baser pleasures of the body. Related to pride and lust, another distinctive vice clouds our knowledge of God, intellectual intemperance or curiosity, a disorder in our desire for knowledge. Aquinas cites Augustine, on how disordered desire for knowledge of creatures can lead one astray from God. And he cites Sirach on how misplaced desire to know about God beyond one's power can lead one astray. The virtue of rightly ordered intellectual appetite, studiositas, is a mean, a matter of seeking the right things in the right way, in a manner appropriate to one's circumstances. So the virtues of humility, chastity, and studiositas all parts of temperance or rightly ordered desire, help one to be mindful of God, to know God, not philosophically, but we might say automatically or intuitively by inclination. Finally, we should mention another virtue, justice, specifically the part of justice that Aquinas calls religion, a habit of right service to God rooted in a recognition of our dependence on forces beyond our control, and so essentially related to the virtue of piety. These, then, are three ways in which a Thomistic account describes how we can attain knowledge of God, or, let us say, awareness of God's existence, power, and goodness, before and without explicit philosophical proof and without the grace of Christian faith. They are what I am calling normal paths to God in the sense that they are more common, but less exact and certain than knowing about God by the intellectual work of philosophical argument or by the gift of supernatural faith and revealed doctrines. And I have ignored altogether even higher forms of supernaturally inspired knowledge of God, including mystical experience. So to summarize, there is a kind of inbuilt knowledge in us by our nature's very inclination to God We can learn about God through enculturation, deference to other wise people, respect for authority of established social practices, practical reflection and common sense, and participation in the acts of a God-fearing community. And finally, we are better able to grasp God through moral formation. Temperance, courage, and justice orient us to wisdom. All of these testify to the reasonableness or rationality, of theological belief, its conformity with our nature and with our own rational capacity to grasp this conformity. For Aquinas, our nature as organisms, as social beings, and as moral agents gives us a chance to know God in a pre-theoretical, non-scientific way. This is a philosophical position, not a distinctively Christian one, about the rationality of theological belief. Plato, for instance, makes all of these same points in the laws. Aquinas didn't know that work. But whereas for the pagan Plato, the prevalence of social and moral corruption, general impiety, placed a large and seemingly unsustainable burden on philosophy to purify and defend knowledge of God, for the Christian Aquinas, God himself has condescended to assist us, to heal us personally and socially, through the gift of his grace through faith. Thanks to this revelation, the natural or affective knowledge of God can be strengthened by supernatural faith in divinely revealed truth. Philosophy can prepare for and support this grace, but even as Plato acknowledged, purely human exercise of reason is difficult, prone to error and undemocratic, even when successful. At this point, we can see that Aquinas and the classical philosophical tradition in general has much to say about the reasonableness of theological commitment, apart from marshaling philosophical arguments about God's existence and nature. If you wonder and are open to God's existence, that wonder is itself a sign and a prompting, a stirring of your affective knowledge. How can we satisfy this desire? We can listen to traditional wisdom and not dismiss human sources of teaching about divine things. And we should be wary of misleading myths theories and ideologies that attribute religious belief to a merely human origin. And given our corrupted human nature, we must avoid intemperate and unjust action, lust, pride, disordered attention, all vices that can cut us off from the wisdom we seek. So now part three, proofs and their uses. All of this helps put in perspective the role of explicit arguments about the existence and nature of God. Given the normal non-scientific ways of knowing God, is there a place for rational demonstrations leading to certainty? Can we prove the existence of God? Indeed, we can. But we should keep in mind that Thomas Aquinas thought that this was fairly mundane work. To him, the proofs are intellectually easy, historically uncontroversial, and even something of a compromise. It was a plain matter of empirical fact for him that the existence of God can be, and has been, proven, and he found the best of philosophy in the Greek tradition to chart a middle path between treating God's existence as perfectly self-evident, or conceptually inescapable, in which case it would not even need proof, and regarding it as something entirely exceeding human reason, and so in no way capable of proof. Aquinas gives several arguments for the existence of God, not because it is hard and needs extra proof, but because it is easy and can be done in many different ways. All of Aquinas' arguments follow the same general inference, starting with some known effect and reasoning back to some primary cause. The proofs differ in starting with different kinds of effect and so reasoning about different relevant modes of causality. And so each proof establishes the existence of a distinctive kind or mode of cause. In the so-called first way of the Summa Theologiae, Aquinas proves the existence of an unmoved mover, that is, a first cause of change, which is not itself subject to change. In the second way, Aquinas proves the existence of a first efficient cause. In the third way, he proves the existence of a source of necessity. These first three ways could all be said to be reaching back to God as a primal agent. But in his fourth way, Aquinas proves the existence of a highest paradigm, something most true, beautiful, or good, in other words, what we might call a first formal or exemplar cause. And in the fifth way, he proves the existence of a source of order, implying intelligence, a first final cause or ultimate purpose. A sixth proof, often considered the most challenging from Aquinas' metaphysical treatise on being and essence, also demonstrates the existence of some kind of first cause. In this case, the observed effect is the distinction of every individual thing from its being or actuality, which implies some first being which has no such distinction, a being in which what it is and what is actualizing its existence are one and the same. That's fairly abstract, and that's why people think it's the most complex. But it's the same basic format. Notice an effect, and then reason back to what could produce that effect. A clear feature of these proofs for those who follow them is their certainty. They demonstrate their conclusions, and so they can inspire and confirm confident knowledge of God's existence. But are the proofs actually helpful to lead a non-believer to come to believe in God? Sometimes, yes, but not in every case. Those who are looking for God may be disappointed, as they could imagine that a proof for the existence of God would establish the existence of some all-powerful spiritual being, something perfectly good and wise, something deserving of worship, something, or rather someone, who rules as worthy lord of the universe and to whom we have a duty to submit. Aquinas does not make arguments to this effect, or he does make arguments to this effect, but they involve further philosophical reflection on the nature of that whose existence is demonstrated in the proofs. On the basis of the proofs themselves, we know almost nothing about this god except that it is the first in a chain of cause and effect. And given what we have said about non-philosophical factors in belief, we should not be surprised that human psychology allows even highly intelligent people to fail to accept or even understand a proof for a first cause. For instance, if they do not recognize their own longing for God, if they have come under the influence of misleading cultural influences, or if they are oppressed by their own disordered habits. So if we want to convert doubters into confident believers, the apologetic use of proofs for God's existence, though real, may be limited. But the proofs have another benefit, their capacity to inspire wonder in those who already believe. Recall that for Aquinas, we technically cannot know God's nature as not just another intelligible being, but the pure source of intelligibility itself. God's nature exceeds our reason. As Aquinas says, expanding on a remark from Aristotle's Metaphysics, our soul's intellectual power is related to immaterial things, which are by nature the most knowable of all, as the eyes of owls are to the light of day, which they cannot see because their power of vision is weak, although they do see dimly lighted things. As from what it illuminates, even dimly, we can see, indirectly, that the sun is there and learn more about it, and even appreciate with greater understanding its blinding brilliance, so too we can learn about the divine nature and attain a greater and greater understanding of why it exceeds our comprehension by thinking towards it from what is more intellectually accessible to us. This begins with a better understanding of what we are even thinking about when we try to think about God, and this is the chief benefit of Aquinas' proofs. The conclusions of aquinas's proofs give us a variety of clear characterizations of god from the five ways we learn to conceive of god as first mover not subject to any motion as first agent or efficient cause as an essentially necessary being as a most perfect being as an original governing intelligence the conclusion of the proof from on being and essence invites us to conceive of god as lacking any composition division or complication that in which the act of being is identical with what it is. To follow the proofs, one may begin with a conception of God that will be modified or clarified in the process of reaching and reflecting on the proof's conclusion. But one does not have to start with a proof, have to start a proof with any concept of God at all. The process of following the reasoning may itself elicit for the first time a sense of what one could possibly mean by God and why that is so difficult to conceive. The proof of a first mover, for instance, does not demonstrate, but it provides the basis for separate arguments to demonstrate that there is one God, that God is immaterial, that he is eternal, good, alive, wise, just. Moreover, the proofs help to show how all of these truths could be related to and follow from conceptions of God that are much less familiar and far more speculative. For instance, that God is pure actuality, or that God is absolute simplicity. The proofs then have the effect of purifying our conceptions of God, but this also means that they can spiritually purify our orientation to seek him. While a very basic wonder prompts us to pursue arguments, providing certainty that God is, the conclusions of those arguments themselves elicit further wonder about the God whose those conclusions describe. If we prove that there is a first mover, how wondrous is it to think that there is something that can generate change without undergoing any change itself? If there is an ultimate end or purpose, how marvelous is it that there is something that does not merely have goodness or beauty, but is goodness or beauty itself? If there is a first actualizer of being, how awe-inspiring is it that something could have no other nature than its own eternal actualizing? In this way, the philosophical demonstrations about God and God's nature serve not primarily to persuade others, though they can do that, but to purify and strengthen the soul for further contemplation in deeper wonder. And so now, a few pages of conclusion. There is a common cultural myth, sometimes backed up with the alleged authority of philosophical history, that the existence of God is not something that can be known or that if it can be known, it can only be known by an act of religious assent, faith, which is separate from and somehow less than what we usually mean by knowledge. Against the background of this assumption, many interpreters present Aquinas as holding that religious faith properly conceived is not merely a personal opinion or belief, but a kind of knowledge, and that the existence of God can be known with rational certainty through properly philosophical demonstrations. I have sought to show that Aquinas presents an even starker response to our common cultural myth. There are proofs for the existence of God, but they are not the only natural, reasonable path to a genuine awareness of God's existence. The proofs may provide more certainty for those who are prepared to follow them, but they also, and more importantly, elicit greater wonder. Their conclusions articulate something about the unfathomable transcendence of God. And for those with the gift of Christian faith, They also deepen our appreciation for the miracle of the incarnation and the mysteries revealed about the divine nature in Christ. For Aquinas, knowledge of God is something that we don't exactly possess, but we receive it and share in it. It is only perfectly possessed by God, and such knowledge as we have from God is on loan from him. Here is Aquinas on genuine knowledge or science of God from his commentary on Aristotle's metaphysics. Such a science, which is about God and first causes, either God alone has, or if not he alone, at least he has it in the highest degree. Indeed, he alone has it in a perfectly comprehensive way, and he has it in the highest degree inasmuch as it is also had by men in their own way, although it is not had by them as a human possession, but as something borrowed from him. In philosophical terms, there are logically sound proofs which provide us speculative certainty of God's existence. But now you can see why I did not want to make these the focus of a Thomistic account of faith and reason and the rationality of belief. In human terms, even these proofs are gifts intended to strengthen us and confirm us in knowing something also knowable in other ways, purifying our minds, and thereby inspiring us to participate in a higher and more perfect way in the divine life of our generous creator. The whole point of theological speculation is to use God's help to get human beings to where they are designed by God to go, namely into deeper knowledge of God than unaided human nature and imperfect human society can accomplish. While we typically think of the rationality of belief in terms of our working to achieve knowledge, Aquinas highlights the role of God himself, helping us to manage another important challenge of rational belief formation, namely simply avoiding error. There is something Socratic about this. Rather than expecting us to construct knowledge, God assists us in purging our ignorance. But God is also like the muse or the divine voice inspiring Socrates, Christian faith for Aquinas is not an alternative to or a replacement of rational inquiry so much as a completion of it. Faith addresses our intellect and must be understood in relation to, although it cannot be reduced to, other modes of knowledge. The supernatural knowledge of faith is rational then, insofar as only by receiving it can we hope to fulfill our proper end, truly knowing God, the blessed fulfillment of our rational nature, which is recognized and sought but never attained by human reasoning alone.